Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. And this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. And I have a pretty prestigious guest today, uh, Dr. Stephen Long. He has so many accolades that it's really better to have him tell it and introduce himself. But uh, Dr. Long, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for coming. Um, would you give listeners just a brief sketch of your background, and then we'll talk about the uh, the major work that you're doing currently? Sure. I'm. I trained in agriculture at the University of Reading, and then I. Uh, studied for my PhD at the University of Leeds in Britain on uh, environmental physiology of plants. I worked for a while in industry with Tate and Lyle in their research division, and then I moved on to the University of Essex in England um, as a faculty member. And a lot of the work I was doing there was really looking at plants which had very high photosynthetic efficiencies, i.e. they could convert sunlight energy into plant biomass efficiently, trying to understand how they did it, and also um, their ability to do it under stressful conditions, particularly low temperature, and then later on, aspects of global change. I moved to the University of Illinois in 1999, where, um, which has always been a center for photosynthesis research, where I could really then focus on my uh, particularly in interest of how we might be able to make plants photosynthetically more efficient and how we might be able to use that in adapting plants to global change. When you say make plants more photosynthetically efficient, how much more efficient have you seen is out there in the wild? And <clears throat> what would be the benefit of doing it? If, you know, it's probably obvious, but what, what would be the benefit? Well, I guess if we look at, you know, what we've done with our major crop plants over the last 60 years, we've had quite remarkable increases in yield following the Green Revolution. But a lot of that's actually been done by um, using genetics to get more and more of the plant's biomass into the bit we care about. So the grain of rice, you know, the seed of soybean, and so on. And we've done, that's been done very effectively, but we've now reached a point where we really can't get that much more in because, you know, say with soybean, it's, the seed is pretty well 60% of the whole plant when we harvest it. And we're still going to need some stems and pods to support those seeds. So the only alternative is to just make the plant bigger. And uh, that's where photosynthesis comes in. And we know that photosynthesis hasn't been improved very much at all in crops. And it falls way short of its theoretical efficiency. So, okay, instead of making just making the plant bigger, what have you done to plants to make them more photosynthetically efficient? But actually, my first question, which I didn't uh, ask, is what, what kind of plants out there do you see are the superstars in terms of uh, photosynthetic efficiency out there? Well, the, the most productive plant in the natural world that we found, um, and this is work I did way back in 19... Around about 1990, when I was really interested in trying to hunt down, you know, what is the most productive plant we can find in the world, that is terrestrial plant, um, was a 
an Amazonian grass actually growing on the floodplains of the Amazon called Echinocloa. And that was working with a group from Brazil and another group from Germany. And we found this grass which produced over 100 tons of dry biomass per year um, and was certainly very efficient at converting intercepted solar energy into biomass. Now, when I say very efficient, it's, you know, of the solar energy it's converting, about 3% of that ends up in its biomass, which is quite a bit better than many of our crops. Well, so 3% is much more than other crops. Yes. But we've, we've done a lot of theoretical analyses, and we think actually, in theory, we ought to be able to get up to about 9%. Wow. And what's um, common plants, what is their photosynthetic efficiency on average, 1% or? Yes, if we look across crops as a whole, it's about 1%. You know, it's so amazing how these small percentages make all the difference. You know, like of all the sunlight that hits the earth, I would guess we use, I don't know what the figure is, but much less than 1%. And it's amazing that, yeah, it's so amazing that plants, you know, the the average plant is only 1% efficient with photosynthesis. and three is a superstar and you're trying to go to nine. And if you just hear those numbers blindly, you think, oh, they're low, but it's incredible, you know? Yes. Yes, that 1% feeds all of us. (laughs) Yeah, I just find that amazing. I just wanted to, you know, reflect on that for a moment. Um, So so making a plant more photosynthetically efficient just means its yield goes up quite a bit. Um, Yeah. Yes, what, that's correct. Are there other factors? Growth rate, is that impacted of younger plants? Oh, yes. uh, do they live longer? You know, what are all the effects and side effects and benefits and, of increased photosynthetic output? It, it varies from plant to plant, but yes, they, they grow faster, basically. So you get, you're getting more biomass formed. And then, you know, if, if you can put 60% of that into the, the seed, you then get, of course, more economic yield as well from them, or more usable yield from those crops. Okay, very good. What um, what are some of the most exciting uses that you know these plants would be put to use for? Now, you started to talk about them, but let's you know let's well, talk about them in a more I, commercial way. What I guess what would if, be, if, you, if you get this nine percent or even four or five percent, who's the first person that's going to come knocking that says, Doctor Long, I got to have this, and we're going to use it for X? Well. Ironically, I'd say that, um, you know, at present we're in a a few years where commodity prices have been pretty low. So in, you know, today there's not a huge demand for this. But if you take United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization projections of what we're going to need by 2050 and what we might be able to deliver, then this would appear to become very important because... UNFAO project that by 2050, we're going to need about 70% more primary foodstuffs. That means rice, soy, maize, wheat, etc. Um, the reasons for that are the global population is growing, but even more important is the fact that the global population as a percentage is becoming far more urban. Urban diets tend to demand more calories because There tend to be more meat products, more dairy products consumed. You've then Mm. got to go through storage and sales and transport, which all tend to lead to wastage as well. Um, And the group at Minnesota, headed by David Tillman, project it may be more like 100% more. So 
if we don't meet that demand by growing more on the land we're already using, that would then incentivize, you know, if prices go up, that incentivize destruction of more natural habitat to use more land to grow our food. Um, so, so in the long term, we see that being able to do this is going to be very important. Um, but so I don't think big biotech companies are going to be knocking down our door tomorrow because you know there's a, today there's not a huge amount of money in doing this. But um, but if we look at if you like public good and so on, um, being able to feed the world by 2050, then I believe this is going to be very important. And of course, if if there is a growing gap between supply and demand, that is going to hit the poorest in the world uh, most. You know, we we spend less than 10% of our um, income on food, but there are areas of the world where 60% of the family budget goes on food. If food prices double, then those those communities are going to be really hit. Yeah, and that's where the Gates Foundation's concern comes in. The Gates Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Yes. Okay. Um, what do you think the upper limit on photosynthesis is going to be? Do you have an idea or a guess? And um, well, yeah, I I said nine nine percent conversion of visible energy into energy in the plant biomass. Um, there are though ways in which we can actually raise that theoretical value. We might be able to modify plants so that they can use longer wavelengths of light. They more or less use the visible spectrum today, but we know, for example, of bacterial systems that can use um, some of the infrared radiation. In the longer term, it might be possible to engineer those in, into plants. But, you know, as I said, 9% is theoretical today, and we're, we're not getting close to that. I think we could at least double the photosynthetic efficiency of our crops. You know, if we really worked at it, we could probably get um, genetics that would do that maybe over a 20-year time frame. Um, you know, and, and that's why really starting this now is important because, you know, from the point of view of a commercial venture, 2050 is a long way off. But from the point of view of, if you like, crop breeding cycles, 2050 is not so long off because... Any invention we have today would not be available to farmers at scale for at least 20 years. Wow. Hmm. Why is that, though? How come we couldn't make it available sooner? Why is it so slow? Well, anything we do with bioengineering has to go through a great, great amount of regulatory testing. Once that's done, you've then got to multiply up the material. You want to test it in a range of environments, and that, that takes quite a bit of time and just Multiplying the material out so that you can actually provide it to farmers takes quite a bit of time. Hmm. How how far along is your is your research? Have you um, do you have plants in the lab that are at photosynthetic efficiencies of you know four five six or even nine percent, or is it uh, you don't no. know if you can get there yet? No, we've we have in in the work that's been sponsored by the Gates Foundation. We recently published some work where we. We're trying seven different ways of improving photosynthetic efficiency. And so one of those we've now been able to validate with field tests is giving us about a 15 to 20% improvement on, on the present. Um, so that right. may not sound a great deal, but 
a breeder would be really happy if they can get a 1% increase in productivity. So the 15 to 20% is a, is a large jump. So we have a couple of others which are coming through, which we think may be of similar magnitude. And we think these are additive as well. So can you talk at all about the mechanism or I don't know if it's proprietary or not, but how, how are you boosting the efficiency? Yes, the one the one that we published quite recently was on the fact that uh, when crop leaves are in full sunlight, they're receiving more light energy than they can use in photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. That, but the leaf absorbs that excess light energy that excites the chlorophyll molecules. They go into uh, excited energy state. If that energy is not dissipated, it will actually react with oxygen to produce what we call active oxygen. And that could actually bleach the leaf. If So the plant has to get rid of that excess energy. And it does it by inducing a process which converts that excess energy to heat. And so the, the energy is just harmlessly lost as heat. But when the leaf goes into the shade, for example, a cloud crosses the sun, it will carry on dissipating a large chunk of the energy it's receiving as heat, even though now it could use all of that energy in photosynthesis. And it takes it many minutes to adjust to that drop in light level. And we've, we modeled this, you know, what that would mean at the level of a crop canopy. And what we learned from that modeling was, well, this could be costing us, depending on the crop, anything between 8 and 40% of potential daily carbon assimilation. So one of the things we've been doing in our project is genetically looking at ways we could speed up this relaxation. And so we identified three genes that if we upregulated them, we, we might speed this process up. And that's what we did. We upregulated those three genes. Um, we found that in the greenhouse, these plants were growing faster and bigger, with, and they were relaxing this process faster, as we predicted. And then we then tested that in replicated field trials, and that gave us this 15 to 20% boost in dry matter productivity. Hmm. You know, I don't know if this is uh, just a quick side note. You know, I I know basic science, but um, I've heard that science doesn't even understand 100% how photosynthesis works. Is that true or is that just an urban? Uh, I guess it depends on what level of understanding you're really discussing. Um, We know... We know all of the steps in photosynthesis. We know, for example, you know how photosynthesis splits water to get reductive energy and release oxygen. Um, I guess what we don't know is everything which is happening at that reaction center at very fine scale. But we, we know that certainly know um, the basics or well beyond the basics in a great deal of detail. And this was very important for us in in coming into this project because what it allowed us to do was simulate on the computer every step of photosynthesis, if you like, rather like a production line. And then we could say, well, you know, if we're putting all these resources into these 160 steps, you know, are, are we optimally allocating our resource or could we do better? And that 
that was really how we came up, if you like, in silico of predictions of how we could improve photosynthesis. And then what we're doing in this Gates project is testing these out in, in practice. Very interesting. Huh. Um, I guess the crops that uh, would be the best candidates are rice, maybe wheat. You know, what are, what are the top two or three that would, would help feed a lot more people if you can get them to uh, be more efficient? Well, for the Gates project, we're focusing on rice, um, which is the most important source of calorie, direct source of human calories on the globe. We're also looking at cow pea, or, which is black-eyed pea to us in the States. But it, in sub-Saharan Africa, it is the biggest source of um, vegetable protein. So it, it's a legume, so it fixes its own nitrogen. And we're also looking at cassava, which is one of the most important sources of carbohydrates, particularly for um, poorer farmers in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. But we've certainly had industry interest in putting these into soybean, which we're testing out. The the one I mentioned to you that we published on um, sort of relaxation as the leaf goes into the shade is being tested out in soybean, in maize, um, and a few other crops as well. What about um, making our own, you know, photosynthetic process, our own leaves, or our own, uh, again, mimicry of um, a photosynthesis? That's why I asked you how much is understood. Has anyone been able to do that? And oh, in terms of artificial leaves? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, no, I mean, certainly some of it's been mimicked, but... Um, you know, this is 160 biological reactions and just stabilizing proteins and so on is a very difficult task. So, yeah, I I think that is a long, long way off. Obviously, That's no, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so. It just amazes me, you know, that, that plants and this process can be so complex. I just wanted to appreciate that for a moment. That's why I brought it up. Yeah. So. Um, are there any negative effects you're seeing on the rice you know, when you upregulate these genes, does it cause any problems that you have to uh, counteract? We, we've not seen any so far. So, I mean, clearly if, um, you know, if you put it in, you know, if you do this, for example, in the crop like rice, you're making more carbohydrate, but you also need to provide more nitrogen as well for that grain too. Um, we, we are, the traits we've targeted in themselves do not require more nitrogen or, or very little more. But clearly, if you're you're producing more grain, you don't want to reduce the protein content of that grain. So that may require more nitrogen. A number of the traits we're looking at do not require more water. So that will be a plus. We get more production without more water. But we haven't seen yeah, negative traits, but obviously we're on the lookout for those. Uh, what about the nutritional profile of the rice? Do you think that'll be affected? Well, we um, we think that could be impacted. Um, the best proxy we have for that is growing rice under elevated carbon dioxide levels artificially mm. because if you boost carbon dioxide, you boost photosynthesis and you get more productivity. And generally there, you do see some decline in nitrogen content of the grain, although breeders think they could deal with that by selecting um, lines which just naturally 
produce higher protein in in the grain. So so it's probable that breeding will be able to offset that. But you don't see any negative uh, counterbalances. You know that the nutrition uh, changes or becomes reduced. Well, I think you know that will, that would be an issue that would have to be addressed. But you know, protein right. content would quite possibly go down, and that would need some breeding to counteract it. Hmm. But we think that's doable. I mean, for example, um, in Illinois, we have lines of maize which have been selected over a hundred-year period that have four times the protein content of of other lines. So it appears that conventional breeding could address that issue. Yeah, do you, how would you how do you get the upregulated genes to quote unquote take so that when the rice you know is bred the subsequent generations don't have to have their genes upregulated they just you know that's just how they are they they're more photosynthetically efficient. How difficult a um, task is that? We we think that's quite a difficult task because there isn't a great deal of natural variation in photosynthesis. So in conventional breeding where people have been selecting for more productive lines, they haven't selected for more photosynthesis and more photosynthetic capacity in the leaves. Um, so, for example, the upregulation of genes in the uh, example I gave you, we are looking at whether that could be achieved using CRISPR-Cas9 technology to see whether we could get the same result. What we did in our experiments to our was to add extra copies of those genes. But it's possible you could edit regulatory elements in front of the genes to get the same effect. And that's what we're starting to explore now. Very interesting. Um, what's your guess on how long, um, even with a 15 or 20% increase, you know, how long do you think it'll take you to be able to breed this into rice where it's sustainable and you're able to select for this and you know, farmers are able to plant this uh, this upgraded rice? Well, I think it would probably take about 10 years to, if you like, to get it into rice to then be able to show that this, you know, test that this works in a number of environments, maybe select the best genetic backgrounds for it to go into. But actually getting that, because this would be a genetically modified crop, getting that through regulations, Getting the accepted um, could take another 10 years, maybe longer. You know, we've golden rice has been there for a long time and is still not available to farmers because of regulatory concerns. That's terrible. We are, um, we are also looking at cowpea, and we've, we're working with a group in Australia that has worked closely with countries in West Africa on transgenic cowpea. And so they're hoping with the Nigerian government to release a, um, an insect-resistant cowpea later this year. So we're hoping to work with these groups in Australia and Nigeria to maybe do the same thing with our regulation of photosynthesis. So that may be a slightly shorter path to getting this to farmers. Okay, interesting. Yeah, it's terrible that regulation could be the thing that slows this by by many years. You know, it's um, it's really vital the research you're doing. It's it's amazing. Um, so, well, I mean, probably the top thing we feel we'd be doing is making this technology is available so that if food shortages do start to develop, you know, society will have a choice as to 
whether it wants this technology or not. But if we don't, you know, as I said to you at the beginning, if we don't start now, it could be too late. And, uh, yeah, definitely. But, but uh, I understand the concerns because I feel plant sciences handled genetic modification of crops, crops poorly. It didn't really explain what it was to the public when it should have done. And that really allowed opposition groups to then move in and develop a lot of fear about a new technology. And um, so yeah, true. we do have ourselves to blame. <laughs> well, I'm glad there's people like you that are working on this. It's vital, you know. Um, just a couple more questions. I'm just curious about the the plant superstars that you know of that are out there in the world. Um, what evolutionary or environmental pressures do you think have caused them to be so much more photosynthetically efficient? Um, a lot of these plants seem to be growing in uh, what we call conditions of primary colonization. So that, you know, when, for example, on the Amazon floodplain, you know, after there's an annual, literally an annual tide as the river rises through the year and then falls. And when it falls, it kind of leaves bare mud behind. And this echinocloa plant I mentioned to you will then grow up on that bare mud and be very productive. And I think it's an unstable environment where a plant has to be productive to get a foothold. We see the same with, for example, um, reed may be something people are familiar with, you know, in the temperate world, which can move into onto mudflats. Cork grass is a very productive plant that grows on the mudflats on the coast. Um, and there's also elephant grass, miscanthus, which is something which will invade um, sort of land after a volcanic eruption. It will land, it will invade the bare surfaces. This seems to be where we see the most productive plants. The other thing all of those have in common is they use a process called C4 photosynthesis, which we know to be um, the most efficient form of uh, photosynthetic carbon metabolism. Okay. Why not try to graft um, some of the genes from some of these superstars in, uh, into rice as an alternative? Well, that that is um, that is exactly what a Gates Foundation project called C4 Rice, um, headed by Jane Langdale at the University of Oxford, is actually trying to do, is to convert rice into a C4 plant. Okay. Well, this has been really fascinating. Maybe some people are not excited by plants and uh, feeding people, but I think this, you know, everything we talked about is really fascinating. And um, any last points that I haven't asked that you think will be really important to bring up before we finish? Yeah, I, I suppose, um, you know, you mentioned C4 rice and we talked about the uh, sort of relaxation of this photoprotection. Mm -hmm. um, a number of things we're looking at are actually additive. So those two, for example, could be put together. You know, we've got other groups that are looking in the Gates project that I had. We've got groups that are looking at how we might be able to speed up metabolism how we might be able to reduce losses in a process called photorespiration. And these things could be put together. And that, you know, we think if we could put all these things together, we could as much as double the yields of our major crops. If you like, you know, I know it's a term that's been used very often, but it could you know, be a, 
a second green revolution. And I think, you know, we need that. Um, you know, I guess one other point I'd make is, you know, other people have pointed out, well, FAO predict we need 70% more food production by 2050. But if, for example, our diets became more vegetarian, we wasted less food and so on, we might not need that much increase, which is true. But unfortunately, the trend is going the opposite way at present. But of course, the other thing, if we can get more out of each acre of land we're using, we would need less land. And you know, agriculture is a major pressure on the landscape. You know, so we, we're probably using some land for agriculture that would be better not used because it's easily eroded um, and so on. So, you know, I think whether we need 70% more by 2050 or not, these advances will be important to, to our future. Last question, Dr. Long. So how can interested listeners uh, read your published papers? Where are they? And, uh, you know, if they want to find out more about what you're doing and perhaps even get in contact with you uh, for collaboration or other business activities, what's the best way to reach your organization uh, and find out about your papers? So we have a, a website, um, ripe, ripe.illinois.edu, where you can find out about our a Gates Foundation project. Um, also, I have a lab website as well, which also lists all of the publications. And if if you Google Long Lab, so L O L O N G L A B um, at Illinois, you'd be able to find us that way as well. Well, very good, Dr. Long. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been a great interview, and uh, you know, thanks so much. Well, thank you very much for your interest in what we're doing. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.